Moto America fans, it's time for another episode of Off Track with Carruthers and Bice. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you may even learn something from this unlikely pair and their special guest. The mic is yours, Paul and Sean. Good morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you are listening to uh, our podcast. This is Off Track with Paul Carruthers and Sean Bice. It's our weekly Moto America podcast. Uh, we talk to uh, all different kinds of people in our paddock, whether that be riders, mechanics, crew chiefs, uh, team managers. We have somebody a little different this afternoon um, on the show. And uh, first of all, let me introduce uh, my cohort, Sean Bice, who's in Ohio. I'm in Southern California, so we're a long ways apart, but our hearts beat together and we almost <laughs> feel like we're holding hands here. But how are you today, Sean? Um I'm doing well, and now I'm all misty-eyed. You're talking about two hearts beat as one, or something. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know where that came from, but I I'll try it. to make it not come back. <laughs> no, it's beautiful. It's poetic. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's talk about the guests we have today. I mean, you're right. We have had some interesting guests on lately, and we've kind of run the gamut. You know, we've had riders, we've had uh, crew chiefs, we've had team owners, and today we're going to be talking to Tom Halverson. And uh, Tom, for one thing, is to me, one of the coolest guys I know and, and had, a, had a pleasure to know. Um, he's uh, been with Yamaha for uh, since 1987. And, you know, I've known him since about 1991. But um thing about Tom that's awesome and makes him cool, a couple things. One of them is he used to look like uh, Kevin Cronin back when Kevin had that leaping fro when he was with uh, the Rario Speedwagon. Uh, Kevin's gone to the blonde hair and shorter, and and uh, Tom, which he's also known as Halvey, by the way, Halvey uh, does not have that crazy blonde hair that uh, Kevin Cronin has. He also here's a here's a real obscure reference. He also looked a little bit like Fee Waybill from the Tubes. So for the you young kids out there, Where do you come up with this crap. <laughs> you know how I am with this crap. I mean, it just it just flows out of me. But speaking of speaking of trivia, I actually took the time and from the top of my head to the bottom of my head, I guess, I put down a list of all the road racers that Tom has worked with. And the list is a lot longer than this because in, as we'll talk to Tom about it, he's worked directly with riders who have, he's been embedded with the teams with these riders that I'm going to name. But he's also been in involved with essentially every road racer that's raced a Yamaha road racing bike since probably the FCR 600 back in 89 and even before that with guys like Rich Arnez, who was on a, on a FCR 750R uh, back in the day. But So let me read this, and it's kind of in a particular order, but I ha might have some out of place. So David Sadowski, Jamie James, Larry Schwartzbach, Thomas Stevens, who works for us now, Colin Edwards, who we had on a few weeks ago, Tom Kipp, one of my favorite riders, uh, Rich Oliver, Eddie Lawson, Everybody knows four-time Eddie. Scott Russell, Mr. Daytona, of course. Jamie Hacking, Jason DeSalvo, both Anthony Gober and Aaron Gober, as well as their countryman and Paul's countryman, Damon Buckmaster. Both Bostroms, Eric and Ben. Josh Heron, Chris Clark, Tommy Aquino, Garrett Gerloff, who's now in World Superbike, of course. Tommy Hayden, J.D. Beach. Josh Hayes and Cameron Bobier, and then this year he's working, going to be working directly with Jake Gagne, who he's worked with in the past. So that is an absolute who's who of road racers from 
you know, back in the Vance and Hines days that I recall uh, to now. And uh, one other quick thing I want to say about Tom, who's who's in his car right now and he's on his phone because with a lot of our guests, the reception seems to be best in the car. The other thing that Tom has a particular talent of doing, besides being a Stevie Ray Vaughan fan, he's a he's an excellent guitarist. And in the traffic jams on the way to work at Yamaha, he actually plays a guitar on the way to work. So let's bring let's bring Tom in. I don't think I've ever done quite the guest introduction they did for you, Tom. So welcome. Thanks for coming on our podcast. Yeah, thanks, John. Quite a um, overwhelming introduction for sure. I'm not sure about the fee waiver reference, but uh, I don't know. I'll take it. <laughs> I, I just don't want to be in front of you when you're playing guitar in traffic. Oh, he's good at it. Yeah. Yeah, I got Go it ahead, down. Tom, tell I got it down. All right, good. <laughs> I don't want to be rear-ended. <laughs> nope, that's what I'm about my safest, actually. Oh, good. <laughs> So, Tom, you've been Mr. Road Race for Yamaha for uh, a long time, long time worked with Keith McCarty, race uh, director, and and uh, all these riders that you've worked with over the years. It's 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 a pretty incredible list and in what they've accomplished. And it's it's a huge testament to you. I mean, I've always felt like you have a, a quiet demeanor, but a quiet confidence and have kind of been the glue that's held, you know, road racing with Yamaha together all these years. Um, pretty special to work with all those riders, wouldn't you say? Um, incredibly special for sure. You know, I, I don't look back too often because I'm always trying to look forward. But when I, when I do look back and look over my career and just think of all those incredible people I've worked with and everything I've learned from them and gleaned from them is definitely a real special, you know, real special thing for me for sure. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I was daydreaming. I was trying to listen to his guitar. Hey, Tom. Um, I could fire it up. You, I think um, your your background is different in the fact that um, you have obviously a managerial role with Yamaha and you have for, for quite a while, but you also have a mechanical background. How did that start? Um, out of... In high school, I went to work for a little motorcycle shop in Sanford down the valley named Albaker's R&D. I was racing motocross and got my dream job there, building, you know, expansion chambers from sheet metal and uh, kind of started from there and did uh, built expansion chambers, did machining, started on suspension work and um, really learned a lot about the mechanics of uh, motocross bikes. And that kind of led into being um, a privateer motocross mechanic to a professional motocross mechanic. And I did that for about 11 years. So, um, you know, had a lot of great riders in that sport as well. A lot of, met a lot of great people and learned a lot from, from them. And, you know, that was another part of my life that was a, a really big influence on who I am today for sure. At the time, did you plan on just staying with motocross? I mean, how did you make that transition? Yeah, you know, I, I really did. I'd been on the motocross circuit for quite a while, and it, it's pretty—it's a pretty brutal schedule, especially you know, at, in the later years, you're doing the Supercross and the motocross and doing exhibition races. It's pretty much you know a full year calendar. So I went to Yamaha to be with their competition support program to work with younger riders and to kind of get away from that kind of a schedule, and which was really fun. That's where I met Colin Edwards when he was just a little kid, you know, and his father. Um. But one day an engineer Tom, talk came about, up to me. Talk that, about um, that story. 
I'm sorry, Tom, talk about that story because talk, talk about the thing with Colin Edwards, because we had Colin on a few weeks ago and I made a point of talking to him about how you really got him started. Well, you were involved with him and in, in when he raced motocross, but really got him started in road racing. You know, tell us that story from your perspective a little bit. Um, I just remember I was in Atlanta and I was just kind of learning road racing and um, learning the procedures and the riders and kind of scouting at the same time. And it was the same time when I was looking for Yamaha, had me looking at, you know, partnering with a, a you know, something like a Yoshimura or a Suzuki, but, you know, for Yamaha, kind of the, where the Vance and Heinz thing eventually led to. But I was at Road Atlanta and I saw this kid and his dad, you know, hanging on the fence watching and went over and it was Colin. And we struck up a conversation. I was surprised he was there. He was surprised I was there. And, uh, he said, yeah, I'm thinking of getting into road racing. My friend's got a couple bikes, and I'm really fast at it. And, you know, do you have any suggestions? And, you know, the only thing, not the only thing, but, you know, one of the things I'd learned at the time was, um, you know, I, th I thought the TZ was a great platform for his his age with a two-stroke experience to to start with. So I kind of said, hey, you probably should get on board with them, these TZ250s, see if you can get one of these. And, you know, you know, who knows? If you need any help, let me know. And, you know, before you know it, he found someone that had had a TZ and some other bikes, and um, he kind of went from there. But that was, uh, you know, quite a, a chance meeting there at, at that point. And I, hopefully I gave him a little bit of good, good advice, and, you know, I'm, I'm pretty confident I did. Yeah, you did. I mean, he very vividly talked about when he started out and worked with you on it and stuff and, and how – you know, you guys had that connection before. And the thing that, that it was interesting, we had asked him just the basics of going from, you know, sticking your leg out on a motocross bike to getting your knee down. And it's a little bit, you know, there's obviously some learning involved there, but he claims that it was never any kind of an issue for him. He went from one to the other, made the trip transition pretty quickly. When you, when you first saw him, he had, of course, I'm, I know you remember that one bike Toberfest when he had all those wins and he had that one Honda RC 30 and raced for another, raced some other guys' bikes. Um, yep. did, had you, you were already working with him at that point, right? Um, yeah, ab absolutely. And that was, uh, that kind of showed me that he was going to be, you know, the, the next big guy. He was so confident and he was having so much fun and he looked so good on the track and he could ride any different kind of bike. And I'm, um, you know, just having a, a, a great time. And, you know, as usual, his dad never put any pressure on him from the beginning of his career. And, you know, they kept it fun and kept it light and going to that. The, uh, he's going to definitely go places. And then soon after was the epic year with him and Kenny Jr. battling it out and, you know, won that 250 championship. And, you know, from there, he really, really just took off. Yeah, that was amazing. Let's talk a little bit about... Um... You've obviously had, a, a, I would imagine, a different sort of off-season this year. Um, the team has moved uh, to the attack team, and I know you're still involved, heavily involved. Talk, tell us a little bit about how, what your off-season has looked like compared to, to past years, or am, I, or am I wrong? Has it just been pretty fluid as, as always? No, it's, it's been much different for sure. Um, you know, my, my title's changed, um, so I'm assistant department manager now for Yamaha Racing under Jim Roach. We are both taking over from Keith McCarty and Mike Guerra, you know, some very, very big shoes to fill. But uh, that transition is happening during this year. They're still both here at Yamaha for the remainder of this year. But, you know, my main job early on was to do this transition with from the, a factory in-house team to the attack performance team. And, you know, basically in this business environment, you just kind of have to try to do more with 
with less and you know even worldwide you know superbike the pata team for example they they went with an outside team to run their you know factory supported team so we kind of mirrored that so doing this with attack i think was a really good move we've been talking to richard about it for a while and um i've just since been helping him to get up to speed and make sure he has the tools that he needs to get started the information he needed he took took our tools we We've leased him our truck, and he's got all our, our information and anything else we could have helped him to get get the ground running. We've really tried to help him with, so that's been quite a process for the last few months. Um, you know, I'm sure once we hit the ground at Barbara, and then the first race, second race, he's going to be able to take this thing 99%, you know, on his own, and it'll just be a little bit of oversight for Yamaha to make sure it's going the way that you know we both want it to. But um, it, it's definitely been different, and you know, there's a little bit of pulls at your heartstrings because I've been doing this in-house with such a great group of guys for so long. It's It's been a little bit hard for sure, but I'm really confident that in the end, this team is going to be as competitive or more than, than what we were, you know, the last 10 years. It seems to be that this will be the model going forward, don't you think? I mean, as far as how race teams are, are run? Uh, probably, probably for a while. You know, everything goes in cycles, but I think for a while it will it will probably be like this. You know, hopefully, hopefully it'll be at least like this. Um, it's, it's really nice for the factory to have, you know, a, a, a top-level team, but still have the, um, you know, the top-level riders getting paid what they should be getting paid and bonuses they should be earning and, you know, keep with all the good guys in the industry. You know, because we have some great contractors that went from from us over to Richard and combined them with some great people he had over there. So. It's, uh, I think it's the way of the future for a while, for sure. Did a lot of the crew end up going? Um, yeah, most of the contractors we had, Glenn Grenfell, Mike Canfield, Levon, and Paul St. Clair went over there. Um, mm -hmm. Those were most of the contractors we had, and they you know, teamed up with you know, Walker Jemison, Will Morton, Fernando Cruz, and Roy Davis over at Attack's Place. So pretty much all the main guys on both sides are kind of joining forces on this, so it's, it's pretty exciting. Sean, go ahead. I know you're. I know you're biting your tongue over there, Sean. So start talking. <laughs> yeah, well, a highly experienced team there for sure. I mean, you can definitely tell with that. You you had mentioned uh, Jim Roach and the, your assistant to him, and I did did want to mention for uh, the audience that uh, Jim used to be the crew chief for G uh, Josh Hayes. I'm sure a lot of you know that, but um, you know, so uh, Jim Roach has moved up to that in that capacity, and now Tom is kind of his assistant in there, and. They've been working together a long time. Tom, I want to ask you about what, the way it's evolved for this year. Does it feel a little bit like it's history repeating itself? Because I remember distinctly for the first time meeting you in 1990 at New Hampshire International Speedway, the first year that, that went from Briar Motorsports to, to Loudoun. You were one of the guys wearing those magenta yellow and black shirt team mm -hmm. shirts. I, I couldn't tell that you were a Yamaha guy. I thought you were Vance and Hines. I didn't know. I mean, of course, Jim Leonard was there. He was Vance and Hines. It took me a little while to realize that you and I think Larry Griffiths, who was there, were, were actually Yamaha employees because you, you were so embedded with the team. So does this, this model that is happening now with the team feel a little bit like it was back then? Yeah, it's, it's very, very close to the same. You know, very close. I was really, you know, um, really close to that whole Vance and Hines effort that we started. And, you know, along with being the coordinator on the Yamaha side, which was, you know, it, or it can be a lot of work. 
I also did suspension work with them. I did, you know, some just chassis setup stuff with them. I worked very closely with uh, the riders and, you know, I was very, very much entrenched in that. <clears throat> I probably won't be as entrenched in that as, you know, I mean, in the attack thing as that, but it is very similar for sure, especially at the beginning here. Well, it's funny. You think back to those days, and this is the point I'm trying to make with this, is back then we, we thought of the Vance and Heinz Yamaha team as the factory Yamaha team. We thought of Muzzy Kawasaki as a factory Kawasaki team. All of those teams were working with a partner uh, like Attack, um, like like Westby Racing, like Team Hammer. Um, it's always been involved that way. There's, it was a little bit seamless. So I know in recent years, Yamaha has made a point of saying Yamaha factory racing, but the factory racing part of it is kind of embedded into this team because certainly Cameron and Jake Gagne are kind of considered to be Yamaha people, not necessarily attack performance people. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yep, we're still maintaining kind of the control of that, that of that part of it, and it is a, you know an expensive element to that. So that's one of the main things that we that we're doing to make sure this thing is successful, for sure. You know the thing the thing we don't have out there, which is really a bummer, is Yoshimura. You know you're talking about sport teams like that. They were the standard for me. You know, and without a you know, a great opponent, there really is no victory. And I think that's what's made victory for us the last several years so special is because that team I always looked at as being the, the best and the most solid and to beat those guys was really, really incredible. So I'm definitely gonna really miss that part of it for sure as well. Mm. How difficult of a decision was it to uh for the second rider this year? I mean Cameron was a no-brainer, obviously. Um, but bringing Jake Gagne into the team was there was there was there a big decision there, or did that come pretty easy? You know, I think it came pretty easy looking around at, at who was there, and you know, you know, we've always talked about Yamaha family, and we really, you know, we have the the wall of champions, and we really respect all those champions that are on that wall. And Jake's up on there twice um, with a 600 Super Sport Championship and a Super Stock 1000 Championship, and that one came on the 15R1, so. I think all the pieces just kind of fit. It just kind of made sense. So it really wasn't that difficult a decision for us. You know, definitely some other great riders out there that we considered, but, you know, all in all, that's, you know, I think we made a good choice with Jake for sure. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny when we had Jake on a few weeks ago, he, you could feel there was a comfort factor there that he knows, you know, you guys and has, knows the bike and has won on it before. So, and obviously knows Cameron well and is good friends with him too. Uh, you had, you had mentioned about with Vance and Hines when you did suspension, and I know with you over the years, I, I think, well, let me just say on a team, there is a fair amount of overlap. It seems like some people do some different tasks. Everybody kind of chips in, but you've had interesting roles throughout your career that have kind of gone beyond what your title is. You mentioned you've done suspension. I know you've done chassis. You've been a crew chief from time to time. You know, you, is there anything on a, on the team I, I think you pr probably had every role. I know you used to make the coffee, too, so, <laughs> the espresso or whatever. Uh, oh, jeez. He was the only one that knew how to use the machine. <laughs> <laughs> or could fix it when it broke. It broke off. Yeah. Yeah. But but yeah. Talk about these multiple roles that you had. And tell, tell is there one that you hold kind of more near and dear to your heart in terms of what you were doing on the team? Uh, well, back even when I was a motocross mechanic and we were traveling on box fans all year and we did our own suspension, built our own engines, built our own bikes, and you were kind of out there on your own. You know, the truck was going to break down. You knew it at some point. And, 
driving from A to B, if you know, from Atlanta to Seattle or something crazy like that in a week, you learned a lot about mechanical stuff and it was, it always intrigued me. But the one, one piece that was missing was, you know, you were always watching the bike going around the track and wondering how fast is that shock really moving? How much stroke is it actually using? Where, what's the balance of the bike at? Where is it actually at? And when that acquisition site kind of came around, that was like the holy grail for me. And I remember Steve Dirks and Vance and Hines had one of the first and earliest systems of data acquisition that I knew about, and I was exposed to that, and that just really lit me up. So I think of, of all the things at first, that's what really, really turned me on was actually seeing, okay, how fast the shock's moving, what's the, you know, how's the, ba the balance of the bike going into the corner, you know, where's the suspension stroke going into the corner, mid of the corner, out of the corner, and then from there learning about... <clears throat> you know, spring weights and real weights and all this kind of stuff and how it relates to the data. And it was just a whole big thing opened up for me that I'd never been exposed to. And that really drove me for a lot of years trying to get my head around that and learn that well. And, you know, I think that also that also helped, you know, a lot in, you know, my confidence in working with riders or teams and, um, you know, looking at data was, was really a big part of it. You know, I... Uh... Tom, in, in seeing your career and seeing you do all these things and thinking about all the riders that you worked with, it's probably a situation like with you. I know how dogs are special to you and you probably, you have more than one dog and don't have a, spe maybe, I think maybe you do have a favorite one, but maybe you won't want to admit it. Um, but it's like children or maybe. Johnny should be okay. What's that? The dog's not listening. He should be okay. <laughs> I know, but you know how I worry about dogs so much. Uh, you've worked with so many riders. Are are there any that you would that stand out to you, or that are a little more special, or that mean something to you? I'm sure, obviously, Josh Hayes does, being a four time champion, and probably Cameron too. But uh, you think back to all, you know, Colin. You mentioned you probably can't pinpoint one one or two, but is is that a possibility to call out somebody specifically? Um, Colin and I got to be excellent friends for a long time. We'd spend. Um, New Year's together. We'd go up to Jackson Hole and go skiing, and uh, those wow. were just some great times. We were we were you know very close for a lot of years, and um, you know we were definitely really close, and you know definitely still a good friend. Um, Jamie James, I got you know very close with, and is a really you know great guy and a great person. Um, it, it's really is very hard to you know isolate some, but you know in the later years, Josh was just an, an incredible individual as well as Cam is. And they both, they're both very different, but they're both, I'm very endeared to both of them and really respect them and what they've done and who they are as people as well. So those would probably be maybe the top four, but, you know, again, I was close with Thomas Stevens and, you know, there's so many guys that you mentioned. They're all. Yeah. Tom Kipp, of course. I know you love Tom, Tom Kipp. Tom Kipp, of course. Yeah. Tom and I poured over data for hours and hours and hours at the racetrack and got into a lot of interesting conversations about all kinds of stuff. But uh, you know, <laughs> another outstanding individual for sure. I you know, just can't say yeah. enough about any of them. It's amazing the riders that you've worked with, and it's been interesting the way if you want if you isolate or speak about Superbike, it's been interesting with with Yamaha and Superbike because of course Superbike came into being around the middle of the '80s, and I mentioned Rich Arnez how he he had had that win, you know, and and I'm sure you had involvement with him or some or knew of him. But then Vance and Hines came along and Thomas Stevens won the championship in 91. There was a time period there where Yamaha wasn't involved in Superbike, but got back into it after doing Formula Extreme. Can you talk about kind of the evolution of from Superbike, how the development of the R1 happened and it, you, went, you got out of Superbike and went back into it? 
Uh, can you explain that a little bit to us? You know, there was years when Yamaha only made a 750 and not really 1000 was competitive. And there was, you know, Ducati 1000s out of there. And you know, just decisions were made to not be in Superbike, which I think were good, and to focus on things that we could be good about and developing a team that, you know, we could grow to be a Superbike team when we when we did get a bike that was um, would be competitive. And that pretty much happened for us. You know, I think really we, we raced 2007, 2008, you know, with um ben and eric but it was really on more of a factory based machines but you know the bike for us was the 2009 r1 that kind of came along and for whatever reason it was fourth in all the magazine tests but you know josh hayes got in that thing and really saw something in it and as a team we took that thing from a, a stock bike to a race winning bike in a pretty short amount of time it seemed like long but you look back in history it was actually a pretty short amount of time and won a lot of championships with it and I think we all learned quite a bit from that. And I don't think any of that would have happened like it did if it wasn't for Josh kind of bringing us all the way back to basics and working from the stock bike up to, you know, something that was, you know, a race winning machine. Then in 2015, when we got that bike, it was just incredible out of the crate. And, you know, although it wasn't as near and dear to Josh's heart when he first rode it, it fit Cam like a glove. And Cam was, he loved that bike from the first time we tested it. and. uh so those from 2009 to 2015, those two bikes were, you know, for sure the ones that turned the you know, super bike thing around from us and put us back on the map. And, you know, I can't, looking back at all the championships we've won, it's hard to, it's it's really hard to believe. But, uh, you know, especially, like I said, racing against some of the best riders and the best team in the paddock. You know, I've, I've told you this before, Tom, you probably remember, but the R1 is, it's incredible, obviously. And when it came into being, well, 98, but certainly 2009 with, with Josh riding the bike and, and what was done with that bike. But the one, I'll tell you, the, the bike I've always been such a huge fan of was that YZF-R7 with Anthony Gobert riding it or even Rich Oliver. I'll never forget when you guys uncrated that thing at uh, – Road Atlanta and Rich was, I think, fastest in one of the first sessions or something. And I just loved the way that bike looked for a, for a 750 anyway. Did, did, was that a special bike to you or just kind of like the other ones? Yeah, for sure. It was, it was a beautiful bike out of the box. I mean, the bikes are still, you know, really cool looking. But it was, um, I don't know, we had incredible success with that very early on. And then it kind of went away. But I mean, yeah. it was, especially with Rich, I think we were on the podium in our first or second race on, on that bike. And, uh, you know, Anthony had some definitely good, some good success on it. So, yeah, I, I probably shouldn't have left that one out because that was a really cool bike. You know, the YZF 750 SP was a good bike. But, um, you know, as far as, you know, modern day sport bikes, the last two. <clears throat> and I want to mention, too, Garrett Gerloff because he's an he him and I got along really well last year and got to know each other a lot better. And um, just we want to give him kudos for going over to Europe and, you know, racing with the world's best over there this year. Boy, it shared a clip for him last year. Paul and I have talked about this a bunch. How and we and we we likened it, and you can speak to this. We likened it to that in '94 when Colin Edwards went on that run, starting at I believe it was uh, Mid Ohio, and he you know he had like those wins. It seemed like he was unstoppable, and led led to World Superbike. And obviously, Garrett did the same thing this past year. Did you feel that deja vu a little bit? Um, a little bit for sure. And, you know, and Garrett wouldn't have, I mean, I'm sorry, Cameron wouldn't have won that championship if Garrett hadn't performed like that at the end of the year. So that just made this, this whole championship probably the most special one I've ever been involved with. But, you know, for Garrett, we started the year out with really just trying to get him confident on the bike because his first year was a little bit, 
I shouldn't say scary for him, but he was a little bit <clears throat> unsure about the way the bike was going to handle, and the bike itself was a little bit unstable, and he just couldn't ride it the way he could the 600, so we really focused on getting him comfortable, maybe slowing the bike down, slowing the setup down a little bit till he was comfortable, then slowly ramping it up, and gosh, by mid-season, he was just firing on all cylinders, and, you know, by the end of the year, he was just, just incredible results. You know, and again, that confidence you see and that, you know, lack of pressure that they're putting on themselves and the team's clicking, everything's clicking. And, you know, at the at, at the end of the season, to have him perform like that and really help Cameron with the championship was just an incredible, incredible uh, accomplishment for all of us. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think um... – I recall Cameron did his first superbike test was at, at NOLA, right? After the, after the national. Yeah. I think he, he, well, the first time he, actually, he wrote it in stock format. I think at Chuck Walla, him and I went out there when it was just basically a stock bike. And uh, e even then just completely stock with some tires on it. He was like, this bike is, you know, it fits me like a glove. And, you know, he was just super stoked on it. Like I said, Josh wasn't exactly, he didn't have the same feeling, but, uh, for Cameron, that was kind of the first one. Then, yeah, the Noble thing was, uh, I think, the second time. Well, because I remember talking to Josh after that test, and and that's when Josh said, like, oh, man, I, this kid, I think, is going to be a little trouble for me. And <laughs> yeah. did, 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 you, did you see that right away as well? Yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, Cameron's an incredibly talented kid, and we knew when he – when the – he was on that super bike and it was, he was confident and could ride it. He like he could with the 600 and really let his, his talent come out on the racetrack on that bike that he was going to be a, you know, a serious, serious contender. And that, yeah, Josh was going to have a much, much more difficult time for sure. Cameron does stuff on, on motorcycle that even Josh can't believe he does. And he'll come out, he'll come yeah. out and tell you that. He's a very, very, very talented kid for sure. Now to, continuing on this theme of, of the riders, um, I mean, if, as you well know, there's, there, there, and you've even mentioned it, but I mean, they're very different. A lot of them are very different in different ways, but don't you think that they, they, they share some common traits? Um, I mean, you would know this from working with them, but what, what are some of the things that you've noticed that they all have? I mean, it's, there's things like confidence and, and feel, but I mean, can you add to that a little bit about what you've noticed they all tend to have in common? Well, at the, at the very base, you know, I, I just call it like the four D's, desire, determination, dedication, and discipline. You have to have all four of those before you can really go anywhere. And if you miss one, you kind of miss the whole boat. But those guys, you know, exude all of those things. You know, they're super, super talented people, but they're able to focus on all those, you know, four different things. And then confidence act for sure comes into play as well when you get kind of under extreme conditions. But I think... The thing they have too is making the the best of a bad day because you're always going to have that, and to be able to you know really push to make the very best of that, they've all kind of <clears throat> had that same trait. Um, you know, all super talented, but yeah, like you say, they're they're all very different in their personality, and they probably take a different approach from a crew chief or a, you know the people that are downloading them and trying to get the information out of them. They all they all take something different to bring their confidence level up and to be happy at the racetrack and be confident in their team. And I think, you know, a lot of the magic in the team is just learning that about those riders and really bringing it out of them every single weekend, no matter what happens. So that's another part that's great about the whole job. Yeah. Speaking of, speaking of riders, Tom, let's talk about a rider that was 
very much aligned with the Yamaha brand and you've known him for since he was quite young, uh, not riding for Yamaha anymore. And this rider certainly seems to me has changed, whether it's his style, there's something about those four Ds you said, maybe, maybe they've been increased and it's, of course, I'm talking about Josh Heron. Uh, do you, he's a different rider than he was maybe even during that 2013 championship that he had. Wouldn't, would you agree with that? Yeah, Josh has matured for sure. There's there's still the old Josh in there, but he's definitely matured. And uh, you know, he's another another rider that you know I've got a lot of history with, and that's really a, a great great kid. And you know, he can definitely be a loose cannon, and you know, say what's <laughs> on his mind, and you know, which I, I like that and I respect that. And you know, but but again, you have to be at a certain point. You have to be disciplined, and you have to you know put in the work, and you have to you know, make the best of the bad times, and. I think Josh has learned how to do that, and um, you know, because at the end of the year, every single point matters, and your attitude matters with the from the racing organization to the fans, and he's become one of the best guys at that. You know, with social media and working with the fans, and you know, I really got to give him kudos for probably being the top guy in the paddock as far as that goes. So yeah, another another for sure great great guy. Have you seen an evolution in the riders regarding their training regimen too? It it seems. I mean, I think about, I don't know, Jamie James, Thomas Stevens. I mean, they were always fit. Colin, too. Uh, but you know, then you have Josh Hayes, who would ride like 200 miles on a bicycle during the week or something. Uh, it just seems like training, fitness, nutrition, and all that stuff have really increased a lot throughout the evolution of the, the sport and certainly these riders. Do, do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. In this in this modern era, especially with the you know since the internet, there's so much information out there. You know, in the past, it was very easy to you know not train too you know enough, and it was very easy to overtrain and not hit your peak on the weekend. But you know, with the advent of trainers and nutrition and all these things that are available to almost everybody, you know, it's it's much easier to hit the mark. And if you put in the work to be you know at the very best you can be, and to you know really hit your peak, you know, when you're at the race weekend, but uh, a lot to it, you know, in the past, for sure, there was a lot of mystery to it, but now it's, you know, especially if I have a good trainer, like the motocross guys, that is just, it's just paramount. And every one of them has a, has a trainer and it's very scientific. And, you know, those guys are racing 17 weeks of supercross in a row, just a, you know, brutal, competitive, high pressure environment. And uh, for sure, the training has come a long, long ways from where it used to be. Absolutely. Mm. All right. Speaking of loose cannons, um, was, Anthony, <laughs> was Anthony Gobert the loosest cannon you've dealt with? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> one of the most talented guys, you know, as far as raw talent, probably one of the most talented guys. He could come back and tell you stuff about the motorcycle was doing, and he go and look at the data, and it's spot on. And, wow. you know, it was just an incredible feel. Um, super talented guy. You get the most out of the bike every single time he's on the track. You know, getting to show up sometimes was difficult. Um, it pretty much took Keith and I, you know, constant, I shouldn't say supervision, because we tried to make it a, fr a friendly thing, but to tell him what was at stake and then tell him what we had invested in him and the faith we had in him. But it, it was pretty much constantly remind him to be, to be disciplined and, to, you know, to really show up and do the work and be in shape. And uh, towards the end there, he was having a, you know, a great run. He ended up breaking his leg at Atlanta. I think he would have had a really, really great year that year. But, you know, 
before that, after that year, I, I saw some stuff in, in bars happen and things that, you know, people would, you know, barely believe. But, you know, again, the environment wasn't as strict back then. And as PC and, you know, Anthony was definitely a, a wild child and people loved him because of it, because of it though, you know, he had a, you know, a great following and, you know, probably still to this day, he's, you know, what a writer you remember because of that. Yeah. Well, and, and we've, I've heard this said many times that that was probably Anthony Gobert's best time of his period of his life in terms of his focus in his racecraft. And we always said, you know, it was you and Keith that kept him on the straight and narrow with that and really got a lot out of him. I, I want to ask you about, I think it was probably 1999, but it was the race uh, at Road America when he, in the wet and he came oh, from behind yeah. and won that race. Do you know how he did that? I mean, I don't get that. <laughs> I, I didn't get it either. To go that much faster than the best riders in the country was just saying, you know, how, do you, how do you do that? I don't know. Just like I think all his, his incredible feel, he could just sense traction and, you know, sense what the river, what to the road was doing so much, you know, more precisely than a lot of guys. It just really helped him in the wet. I mean, he was just incredible in the wet. If he, if he wanted to go, it was, um, he was unstoppable. And to emphasize, there was that your traction control was your your right wrist, right? It, there was no electronic control on that bike. He had to do no electronic so. control, and he didn't want to change the yeah. setup. He wanted to ride the thing exactly like it was in dry because he knew how it was going to react, and he knew, you know, how he he just wanted to, to be on the bike that he knew and make the very best of it and use the natural talent he had, and he made it work. That's incredible. I want to ask you about something else, Tom. You and I have talked about this a bunch of times enough so that I wanted you to discuss it a little bit. For people, we, we have a lot of fans that listen in who are historians of our sport, um, which means, of course, they're a little bit older like you and Paul and I. So they have that, that, uh, that understanding. Yeah, we all clear our throat. But I want to ask you about the year that Jamie James almost won that championship. Everybody points at the last round and a mechanical issue that he had, but it really wasn't that. Are you, uh, are you able to tell us a little, tell us that story a little bit, or would you please tell us that story? Well, that was probably one of the things that hurt me the most in this whole, in this whole business was that, you know, ruling by the, you know, AMA referee at the time. I won't mention his name, but I will never, ever forget it. And, uh, you know, Jamie was just coming. I think it was Cat. Um, Canada corner and made a pass on Pascal Picot and where he where he was focusing there's no way that he could have seen a yellow flag that was flying I think up above turn one no way possible but there was a yellow flag waving he he didn't see it um, he there was plenty of time for him to safely go through there and Pascal but you know the guy called up by letter of law didn't want to listen to any reason um, and pretty much just you know took a bunch of points away and that's what really lost the championship for us. But for one guy that's kind of a part-time guy to be at the track and make that call all by himself without listening to anybody else's um, opinion. I mean, I remember sitting up, Rich Oliver came down, I was sitting up and he said, I was sitting up on that hill. I was on that bike with Jamie. I know where he was looking. There's no way you could have seen that flag. They didn't want to listen to any of that. You know, they just took those points away from him and took that championship away that we really should have had. So, that everything that hurts the, in, that I've done in, in, in road racing, that was probably the biggest thing, you know, but really bad for the team and for Jamie. And you know, he really deserved it that, that year. It did come down to the last race and 
you know, we still could have got it done, but we didn't. But, you know, it was really lost at Road America in that event. I'm a firm believer in it being cathartic to talk about it, by the way, Tom. So I know I've asked you this one, <laughs> that one a few times. And I think I'm just yeah. trying to ease your pain more than make it, you'll relive it. But the point, the point about it is at the time, I mean, I know it was obviously a pivotal moment, but there was still the season left to run. It just turned out that the way things happened, he almost won it in that last round. And of course, if that wouldn't have happened earlier in the season, he would have won the championship. But as it worked out, it was just so close. Right. And I mean, you didn't at the time. When it happened, you didn't think, well, that's the championship. It's over at that point, right? There was still a season left to go. Um, or, or did you think that? I, I knew it hurt us. I, I, you know, for sure, even last year with Cameron, you get, you know, a bunch of points behind. You never, ever give up. And you always see, you know, if there's enough points on the table to get that championship, then you still have hope and you still keep pushing. And no matter what, you keep going. So, yeah, you're right. I, we weren't focused on that. Um, throwing the balance in the championship at the time. But, you know, of course, at the end, when you think back on it, it's just, it just makes you so angry. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, well, thanks, enough, of, thanks enough for making his day so nice, Sean. Yeah. I know. Well, I don't want to, I don't want to end it on that note, but you know, like I said, I think there's catharsis there. So I'm doing it for you, Tom. <laughs> so, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I have what my own. <laughs> but before we wrap up, I do want to bring up one more thing. I mentioned at the top that you're one of the coolest guys, if not the coolest guy I've ever known. And one of the reasons you are that way is uh, one, of, one of the coolest, if not the coolest actors and my favorite actor I've ever known was uh, Steve McQueen. And I, I have to ask you about you. You had some brush with him at some point in your career or, or actually when you were younger, I should say, not in your career. Can you can you tell us about that just to kind of wrap it up? Yeah, my my father was a, a plumber. He worked in Santa Monica, a place called O'Brien Plumbing, and he was a really good-looking guy, very you know well-spoken, nice guy. And they would send him out to some of their higher-profile clients in Bel Air, Westwood, Hollywood, and one of them happened to be Steve McQueen. My dad was just getting us into motorcycle riding, and him and Steve got into a conversation about that and invited my dad and his kids up to a little secret track that he had. And, uh, yeah, we sh showed up in our little van and <clears throat> got to ride, you know, for the afternoon with Steve McQueen and his son, Chad. And uh, wow. that was really, uh, at, the, at the time, I was more enamored with Chad because the kid was so good at such an early age. Then, um, you know, really kind of hanging out with Steve McQueen. It didn't really hit me till you know, right. a long time after how special that was. But, um, yeah, he was, you know, just, just an icon. But we would see him at Indian Dunes with Ali McGraw and, Parked next to him and just head out into you know San washed Indian dunes and <clears throat> ride around and he was just a normal guy out riding a motorcycle. So uh, yeah, that was really really cool. But there's so many other high profile movie stars that I met back in that period through my dad that it was, you know, I got exposed to a lot of famous and ultra rich people at a very very young age. But that one was probably the most special. That's so cool. And the funny thing, Chad is close to our age. I mean, I think isn't he? Wasn't he maybe a little younger than you at that time? Or it still is, so. obviously. Yeah, I th yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, we, I didn't really had any contact with him afterwards. But, um, you know, besides seeing me in Indian Dunes just ripping around the main bike track there and making me look like an idiot. But um, <laughs> definitely a talented kid, for sure. <laughs> That's just an amazing story. So I thought it'd be good to wrap it up with that one. So, Paul, yeah, did you know you. that story? Did you know the, did you know I, the I, I had never heard that story, but that that's very cool. And uh yeah, you're lucky boy, Tom, to get to do that. That's uh, that's something you'll always remember. Yeah, but um, anyways, 
you guys, um, I appreciate you spending some time with us. Um, Tom, I look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks at the, oh, a couple of weeks, <laughs> next week That's at the me. test. <laughs> I look forward um, to it too, for sure. And, uh, and I, I, I guarantee you have a nice little season there with, with attack. I think it'll be a little bit different for you, but, um, you've gone through some different things and you always, uh, react well to it all. So I expect the same this year. And, uh, Sean, thanks for joining and, uh, and, uh, putting, putting Tom on the hot spot and making him talk about things he didn't want to talk about <laughs> and, uh, all in the name of counseling, which I'm not sure that worked, but, uh, hopefully he gets in his car, his car on the way home. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> anyway, guys, thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Hey, Paul, right. Paul, before we, before we cut it off, let's, let's throw in a, let's throw in a, uh, a, a little thing about, I'm going to, I'm going to tell everybody to make sure they get their Moto America live plus subscription to our streaming service. Uh, with the test next week, it won't be long before the season starts. And of course, there's race tickets too, Paul. Do you want to mention anything about that? Or I think you just nailed it. But yeah, I think. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> Can you, know, you race? We obviously have a, uh, you know, there's obviously all these races are being canceled and stuff. And it's, and it's a bad situation at this point in time with Dorna. But um, I'm very confident that, uh, that Coda will go ahead and that'll be our first Superbike round of the year. And then, uh, and then we follow that up right away with Road Atlanta and all of our races. So, yeah, the okay. season promises to be a good one. And, and anybody that, uh, that feels so inclined needs to get those tickets and get them while they're cheaper than, than the day of the event. And, uh, and like you said, the Live Plus is obviously important for those people who can't be at each race. It gives them an opportunity to feel like they're there because we literally show everything that happens the entire weekend on, on Moto America Live Plus. So. Thanks for reminding me on that and for reminding the fans, but uh, we'll talk to you guys soon.